Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at fapc.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, and I'm the Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. This fall, we are on a bit of a lighter note in our Crossroads podcast, talking about some fun and some things that give us joy. We've had a rough past year and a half, uh, and I thought that uh, taking something a bit lighter might lift our spirits a little bit. In September, I spoke with Dr. Jason Santos about the theology of play And last month, I talked to our very own senior pastor, Dr. Scott Black Johnston, about finding faith in the Marvel Universe. Both of those podcasts were a blast to record, and I hope you get a chance to listen to those. Uh, You can find them on our website or on Apple Podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Ann Wilcox, Assistant Professor of Education at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, and C.S. Lewis enthusiast. Anne uh, has lectured on the literary genre of the Chronicles of Narnia at the Oxbridge Conference in England in 1994 and 1998, and she's here with me today to talk about the nature of play in C.S. Lewis's work. So thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. I am looking forward to this conversation, Jamie. Thanks for the invite to join you all. Hmm. (laughs) Thank you. So we've talked a little bit uh, with Jason. I talked about board games. And last month we talked about movies, the Marvel Universe in particular. And I wanted to make sure that we include uh, uh, books as well, because those are another very fun avenue that we have um, as people to find play and to find joy. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of play as Lewis was creating the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes, I am delighted to share about that because so many people would ask him how he created them that he had a lot to say about that. And um, one of the main things he would tell people was that all of the stories began with images and in fact images that he had when he was 16 Believe it or not, the fawn carrying the umbrella was an image that popped into his 16-year-old mind. And Mm -hmm. then at age 40 is when he decided to try to make a story of it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people misunderstood how he created the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, he says that some people thought that he began by asking himself how he could say something about Christianity to children. And in an essay called Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What Is to Be Said, he responded to that and he said, oh my goodness, people think that I fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, but I was really going to say something about Christianity to children, and I'll actually quote him. And then he says, then people think I collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, and then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. And here may I quote him profoundly. He says, that is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write in that way at all. Everything began with an images, with images, he says, and a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen in a sledge, a magnificent lion. 
and he says at first there wasn't anything Christian about them. So isn't that interesting hmm. about the yeah. beginnings of this? He was playing with the images in his mind. He does go on to say in that same um, same essay that the author in him, however, began to have his turn, as he calls it. And then he says, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past certain a certain inhibition which had paralyzed me much of my own uh, religious life as a child. Mm -hmm. And he just says, why, why, did, why does one find it so hard to feel as one is told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? Um, so he, he began to say, I thought that the chief reason was that one keeps being told how one ought to feel, and the obligation to feel can freeze feelings. So the whole subject seemed, he said, whole religious subject seemed to be associated with lowered voices, almost like something medical. But then he says, but supposing, and I want to camp on that word, Jamie, because supposing, he uses that word suppose or supposal in a lot of his response of how he created the Chronicles. And basically the idea of supposing something is saying what if, which is one of the main things we do when we play, especially with imagination. But he says, what if I supposed that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, I could strip those things of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, and one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. And then a very famous line, he says, could not one thus steal past those watchful dragons? So what we see is C.S. Lewis having a wonderful time with imagination, the play of images, and then also saying, what if? And you know, Jamie, I taught fifth graders, and that is one of the reasons why the C.S. Lewis Foundation invited me to go to Oxbridge and lecture. And 1998 was the 100th birthday of C.S. Lewis, and so they wanted someone there who would be, was experiencing the Chronicles of Narnia with children. And so I jumped in as a teacher. I was actually teaching fifth grade at the time. So I jumped in along with all the Oxford Dons and <laughs> <laughs> had fun, fun expressing what fifth graders might have thought, might think about the Chronicles of Narnia. And I do have to tell you what one student said. They eagerly raised their hand and said, oh, I know what this story's all about. After we had finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I know what the moral is, said that student. I said, oh, really? You think there's a moral to the story? And he said, yeah, I think it's that you're not supposed to take, um, never, t never take Turkish delight from strangers. <laughs> So at that conference, we played with a lot of how fifth graders perceive the Chronicles of Narnia. And I will eventually want to tell you the story of Jacqueline and her perception of the Chronicles of Narnia, too. Hmm. <laughs>
Thanks. Mm. You know, last month when I was uh, talking with Scott Black Johnston about Marvel, um, we were discussing there's a new uh, series on Disney Plus related to the Marvel Universe, and it's called What If? And it's taking these stories that so many people know, these these comic stories, and flipping them a little bit. Um, and that's just kind of what that reminded me of what you were saying with the What If? Um, because it's such a great way to to imagine things when you're able to take a story you think you know um and and kind of flip it on its head which is what they're doing in in marvel and also and also here it sounds like c.s lewis had that same kind of an idea um and then really just play with it in your imagination and and see what what comes out absolutely you know that that what if is just such an important thing to expand our ideas and also our perceptions into other places and i think one of the best ways that lewis clarified what he was doing in the chronicles of narnia was actually a letter to fifth graders and maybe not everyone knows that there's a whole book published on lewis's letters to children and in this one particular um, letter, he says, you know, I'm really not doing the allegory thing. And so these are the words he writes to those fifth graders. You are mistaken when you think that everything in the book books represents something in this world. Things do that in the Pilgrim's Progress. So he's referring to a very, you know, famous allegory. But he says, I'm not writing in that way. I did not say to myself, let's represent Jesus as he really is in our world by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose, and there's that word again, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and the Son of Man, as he became man in our world, became a lion there, and then imagine what would have happened. If you think about it, you will see that it's quite a different thing. Hmm. So such an interesting perspective to understand that all of these stories that have meant so much to us really began with playing the playing of the imagination the images and then putting those together but another thing that i learned about play came from one of my fifth graders named jacqueline Mm -hmm. and Oh, she she was a child that never sat still, just had all <laughs> kinds of energy. And she was listening as I read aloud from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And of course, we had gone through the beginning of the story, and we were at the, those who love the Chronicles so much, and you might want to look at these, it's chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch. Mm-hmm. And oh my goodness, the witch, you know, has had her day and she can't wait for Aslan to appear at the stone table. And Aslan so um, vulnerably says to Lucy and Susan, who have found him and are with him as he's making his way to the stone table, he says, Lay your hands on my mane so I can feel you are there and let us walk like that. Well, of course, mm-hmm. he lets the children be hidden. Well, he goes forward, and of course, the witch does her evil cackle and binds him, and she's waiting for his roar, and everybody's a little bit afraid of him, but he doesn't do anything. He's just humbly submitting to that time. He's shaved, he's muzzled, there's a knife. Lewis describes it so well 
in the gleam of the torchlight, he says it's made of stone, not of steel, and it has an evil shape. And every muscle in Jacqueline was quiet, completely quiet, which was (laughs) an an astonishing miracle. (laughs) But then as chapter 15 emerges, you see that the dawn begins to appear and Lucy and Susan, if you remember the story, come to take all take care of the body, the dead body. And they start to try to remove, you know, just get those ropes off. And they need help from mice who come and chew through the ropes. And, oh, they're sobbing and sobbing. And so was Jacqueline in my classroom. She was so captivated by this moment in her beloved Aslan. She'd grown to love him through the story. (laughs) But she was crying. And then um, all of a sudden the dawn starts to appear. And the stone table cracks. And the children turn around and there's no body there. And, of course, they're horrified. Couldn't they have just left the body And Susan says, what does this mean? What is it? Is it more magic? And of course, Aslan in his huge voice says, it is more magic. It is more magic. And he stands bigger and his mane has grown back. And Susan wants to know if he's a ghost. And of course, he's not. So they're hugging him. But Aslan says that wonderful line of, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could look back before, a little further back, before time dawned, she would have seen a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Well, that's when Jacqueline, my student, just has this look on her face of, can this really be real? But it's the next thing that happens that we don't often see or spend time with in Lewis, and that is what happened after that is this most extraordinary time of playing with the children. So... When Aslan explains all the profundity of this death working backwards, he says, Oh, children, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. Mm -hmm. And then there's this wonderful romp that goes on, and he stands, uh, well, only Lewis can describe it well, so I'll read a little bit. He stood for a second, Aslan stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over the table trying to reach him, and Aslan leaped again, and a mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautiful velveted claws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one ever had except in Narnia. And that's when Jacqueline 
jumped to her feet in the middle of class and exclaimed, oh, Aslan, I love you. <laughs> and I thought at the time, <sighs> there's, we must recapture the quality of play that leaves us in a happy heap. <laughs> and it says in that passage, too, that the funny thing is when they all three finally lay together panting, that no one felt tired or hungry or thirsty. And I have been wondering if, if we remember play, sometimes those human needs of weariness and hunger and thirst might be satisfied for mm. everyone, not just for me and mine. But I wonder about that. One thing I love about the um, Chronicles of Narnia is the different areas. Like you were saying, not, it's not an analogy. Um, and yet you do see truths within it. Um, and uh, you may already know this, but my favorite Chronicles of Narnia book is The Horse and His Boy. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and wonderful uh, book. <laughs> it is a wonderful book. And I, I just love, um, I love Aslan. It's similar to Jacqueline's loving Aslan in this story. I, I love um Aslan in that story and the ways that the people of other lands besides Narnia are able to see Aslan and just the truths within that, um, within that story. Um, that's something that I really appreciate in the Chronicles. Uh, you know, I think there is something just powerfully playful. There's always some comic relief. And I think what Lewis does is... Uh, the same thing that Tolkien was doing, and you know they were good friends. Mm -hmm. And um, when um, Lewis and Tolkien refer to something they call fairy stories, what they really mean is that they are creating a land that is, as Tolkien would say, wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there shoreless seas and stars uncounted, which is what Tolkien says in one of his essays. Mm. But then he also says that these stories have beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril is always there. But then there's both sorrow and joy as sharp as swords. So they're both trying to create what the realities of what we really go through as human beings, hmm. but try to put that in a imaginary place so that we can, you know, experience the true, um, um, just profundity of all of it. Hmm. Um, just so important. And, you know, I just think that that scene that Jacqueline responded to just shows such an astonishing wonder of play in response to resurrection. And I've been thinking, Jamie, that maybe the wonder of the truth of resurrection really requires play in order to hmm. respond. Um, hmm. We are doing a lot of fighting right now within, uh, not only within the church, but in every institution, and we've kind of lost our connections. And what I watched for Jacqueline was when Aslan said, hey, catch me if you can. And in that story, he's got to get going and rescue the rest of the Narnia from the <laughs> <Right>. evil witch. <laughs> but he says, let's stop. 
let's stop and play. We just need to play in response to this resurrection. And I keep wondering, what if, <laughs> instead of having all of our energy put into I'm right and you're wrong and you need to think the way I do and that whole um, you know, impulse of convert, 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 see it my way, see it my way, what if instead our lives celebrated, um, you know, the resurrection realities that we believe in with the winsomeness of play? Mm. I mean, what if I remembered to romp, to do a little bit of catch me if you can, despite the presence of evil in our world? Mm. And I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking or praise the Lord anyway or uninformed optimism not talking about that at all. It's this vibrant wonder of resurrection in the midst of a broken world that invites us to play. It mm. says, hey, you know, Jacqueline responded not because Aslan wasn't just goofing around. Aslan wasn't just, you know, being silly. He was really inviting her to celebrate in a playful mm. way. And it just feels like it, that is so antithetical to the you're in, you're out kind of mentality, canceling each other. Instead, it just seems to speak towards let's include and invite. And Jacqueline really got that. She said, yeah. I'm invited. I'm invited into this resurrection celebration. <laughs> Along these same lines, um, it, it, it having to do with, you know, uh, choosing sides and all that. I know that uh, you've told me a story uh, in the past. Um, I know that one of the times that you went to Oxbridge, you were there uh, with your dad. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and it was the 50th, anni 50th anniversary of D-Day, I believe. Yes. Um, and you were traveling there with your dad and your dad was able to re relive, uh, revisit several of the spots that he was during World War II um, on that trip, uh, particularly the area surrounding the Battle of the Bulge. And I know that you have a, a story related to this idea of play and, and finding joy in the midst of hard things. Would you would you be willing to re, re, replay that for me? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, at the 1994 Oxbridge Celebration, and that conference is called Oxbridge because the C.S. Lewis Foundation makes sure that during that conference you're at both Oxford and Cambridge, so it's called Oxbridge, oh. <laughs> so that's the name of it. Um, but yes, my father invited me to go to that conference with him in 1994, and at the after the conference to retrace his World War II steps, and he was a medic, um, at the, and he was positioned at the edges of the Battle of the Bulge, a really horrific battle where almost 80,000 American soldiers were lost and almost mm -hmm. 100,000 German soldiers. So huge, costly, costly battle. And it was just fascinating to walk with him through those memories when he was 19 and he was doing this now when he was 70 plus. <laughs> <laughs> so a real privilege. And the thing that struck me was when we found two women, now 59, who had been nine years old, little children in a village where 
Dad and his fellow soldiers set up their operatory to treat wounded soldiers. One of the girls named Jesslane, her mother um, opened up their home and the um, table, the dining room table became the operating table for the Hmm. medics. But once we found those two women and dad carried a picture of himself and his um, medical unit from the army with him so he could show it to people and once they recognized him we were invited to a huge celebration in that village with people gathering around but Jamie the the most exciting thing for me or the most moving time was I realized that they wanted to tell the story of how my father had figured out a way for them to play in the midst of all the horrors going on around them. So my dad went to his commanding officer and said, couldn't we just see these hillsides over here? Couldn't we just station people around those and make sure they're safe and then let these children out of their homes from where they're hiding or trying to stay secure and just let them do some sledding for an afternoon. (laughs) And so all the soldiers, you know, got the whiff of these children needing to play and their own need to have some relief from all of this. And um, they figured out how to do that. And so when we retraced those steps, that was the first story that those Mm -hmm. women shared, which shows you how crucial play is. I mean, out of all the memories they had of being children during that war and in such a vulnerable place in Belgium, the mm. Battle of the Bulge. That's what they, they had their daughter interpret in English. They were speaking French, and they had their daughter interpret that story to me. Oh, first tell her about this. <laughs> when your dad helped us play in the middle of war, we've never forgotten that. So I wonder, you know, a play that is celebrative, inclusive, a way to feel the true strength of rebirth, which is what Aslan is doing. C.S. Lewis is having Aslan do in that wonderful story. It was, it was just such a privilege to see the reality of the importance of play, despite what's going on mm. around us. Yeah. Do you have anything that you, else that you'd like to share in regards to either C.S. Lewis or play or um, that creativity, that what if of imagination? You know, I would love for us to just listen to the dedication that Lewis gave or wrote in the front of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He was a godfather to a young woman named Lucy Barfield, who was the daughter of his good friend Owen Barfield. And I think this dedication just gives us an amazing peek into what happens to all of us when we're young. We love fantasy and pretend. Then we get older and we kind of are just doing life and you know the things that have to be done daily and all the cares and all of that we kind of forget and then when we get older like me now (laughs) I'm loving fantasy stories again 
So Lewis has captured that so beautifully in this lovely dedication of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So here is what he says. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you. But when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it's printed and bound, you'll be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. Hmm. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Well, I've really enjoyed having this uh, time to chat with you about uh, play and C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the most fun things about doing this podcast this month um, is that I am able to have this conversation with my mom. Uh, Anne is actually also my mom. So uh, thanks, mom, for joining me uh, this month. Um, it's been a fun fun couple months of topics. Uh, and so I'm, I uh, am excited for this one. And I'm also looking forward uh, to next month. We will be talking about, we'll continue with our fun uh, conversations and we will be talking about um, finding God in Star Trek, which uh, we've now done board games, movies, books, and we are on to TV shows. So again, thank you so much for joining me, Anne. Well, and I have to say, Jamie, thank you for letting me share your childhood because <laughs> we had a lot of fun times of playing together. <laughs> we did. And reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. So. <laughs> well, thank you. And thanks everyone at home for joining us again this month. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Managing editor, Jamie Staley. And editors, Vashina Brisbane, Kelly Picayo, and Emily Dombroff.